Hello everyone and welcome to the Nationalist Academy. There's been a lot of podcasts out there and as many of you know and listen to our podcast, this is under the Woke Folk Network. We have many such podcasts, of course, as the Woke Folk and the Big Ten Podcast. This podcast specifically is for philosophy and political philosophy specifically. You can consider this podcast to be kind of your library of sorts. We can occasionally have guests if they're, you know, particularly interesting or particularly well-read in this specific thing. Every single week, our plan is to each read a book and give it a general review. We're not going to give it a completely objective review, as in that you can find on many such places that, yo, you should read this book, you shouldn't read this book. We're going to... <laughs> We're going to actually we're going to assume that the books we pick are most likely worthwhile to read and we're going to actually discuss whether the books are right or wrong, how they relate to the right, how they relate to nationalism and so on and so forth. So starting off, I would like to just um get my political philosophy out of the way. I consider myself um part of the alt right. I'm a nationalist libertarian. Our hosts, by the way, are Thomas with us, and also Uber is supposed to be with us, but he is having a night on the town with his <laughs> wife. Hopefully in the second episode we can get him in to just give a general label to his political ideology, but Thomas, why don't you tell us some um, what your political leaning is? Um, well, that's actually a great question. I would consider myself a nationalist populist, with some libertarian leaning. Mm -hmm. That's very true, and... I, I often have to qualify this because when I say nationalist libertarian, it's not libertarian in the sense that um, that like a classical liberal or even like a Ron, it, somewhat closer to a Ron Paul libertarian. But the basic idea with it is that I always often explain is America is not like Germany whatsoever. If you try to just copy and paste German national socialism onto America, it simply wouldn't work. We're just too big, and our economy would, just by the very nature of having such a large, both consumer base and resource, and um, resource um, production, it's just not feasible to have a national socialist system. Therefore, I say it's nationalist libertarianism is basically American national socialism with domestic capitalism. I... When people make these um, complaints against capitalism, they're usually in just two schools, either against international cap capitalism, which I also disagree with, and also in the kind of realm for the second category is kind of a, a mistake for materialism being a, um, a moral system to follow by, which it isn't. Yes, capitalism is materialistic, but it's mo mainly a tool to deal with these moral resources, not moral resources, with these material resources and not really a good framework to, you know, impose or utilize your, you know, moral, um, moral and general ethical imperatives that you follow. So, as stated before, we are going to do general book reviews. My book review for the very first first um, episode of this is The Metaphys Metaphysics of War, Battle, Victory, and Death in the World of Tradition by Julius Evola. Thomas, what book did you pick? 
Um, I chose Joseph Conrad's uh, excellent novel, Heart of Darkness, and I might note that I have the Norton Critical Edition, and I will reference some of the material in it. Very good. And Uber, partly, he didn't show up because he didn't pick a book this week, and hopefully <laughs> he will have a book for next week. But um, do you want to go first, or do you think I should go first? Go ahead, sir. Okay, well... Julie Savola was a very prominent um, writer and thinker, of course, during um, Mussolini's fascist Italy in the 1930s and 40s. And to get a bit of context for this book, this is one of his later... It's, it's not really a book so much as it is a collection of his essays in a, um, a fascist magazine that was published. He gave many... Um, talks and lectures before the fascists and national socialists and you can even see that in many of his essays in here he openly um it's not so much a denunciation of the italian fascism but to semi-quote him he kind of saw the italian fascism as not a failure as i as i'm just um as i'm keep bringing up, but just kind of as a disappointment. He saw the changes with the Italian fascist system as a superficial change. It was, as he puts it, it's bringing up back the aesthetic and the, and not so much the tradition of tradition, but rather the superficialities of tradition. In in a sense, it would be resurrecting the the um, Roman Empire by having everyone wear togas and casting things with with the traditional um, casting um, your buildings out of marble rather than the common materials. It's only a, an aesthetic change, not really an actual core fundamental change. The two primary aspects of this book that are so important and interesting for us on the nationalist side to actually read into is first is his kind of categorical explanation of this right-wing traditionalist society. Now, he he was among the, um, the people of National Socialist Germany and Italy who kind of um, looked for roots of this um, white identity, this pan-European European identity, in the both Persian and also the northern Indian culture. He actually looks at um, human civilization, white European civilization, as broken down by the European caste system, actually. And it's not specific... Not European caste system, Indian caste system. And I'm talking about <laughs> from India, actually. But it's not strictly to it, but it basically goes like this. At the very top are the Brahmin. They're the spiritual leaders of the society. Under that, you have the, the kings, the knights, the noblemen. And under that, you have the mercantile class and the people who produce and sell and under that you have as he puts it the slave caste you have the people who have nothing to give and offer society but their raw labor he brings up i wish that we could banish this out of right-wing thought but he does he does buy into and it kind of fits into I'll explain it in a little bit. He inputs the idea of proletary and bourgeoisie into this caste system, kind of putting the mercantile class as the bourgeoisie and the slave class as the proletariat. This is why, in his mind, Marxism is... It's not so much antithetical to nationalism, but it's kind of a devolving of humanity. He frames it as when... when um, 
proper traditional civilization devolves from being led by this class of priests, it devolved first into this, this sec, he puts it as a secular society, as honor being the source of primary morality. These kings and queens, these people who, they go and they fight for, for, um, for such, um, values as the sovereignty of the king and the nobility of the aristocrats and things like that. When society devolved further, it devolved into this mercantile class of this bourgeoisie, anti-nationalist, globalist system in which the mercantile class are only concerned with things of profit. They care nothing for tradition. They care nothing for for the spiritual backing of the original system, and also with these other slightly higher caste values, such as honor and, you know, sac sacredness of the king and other such things like that. And he puts Marxism as coming from the very lowest rung of this European civilization, the slave system. They, he says it's materialist. All that the slaves can offer is their their labor and their time, thus all they seek is to gain the value from their labor and their time. They are are unable to perceive the worth and the value of these upper systems. He also kind of um, gives a little, you know, nod of approval towards fascist thought by putting this this idea forward of class cooperation, saying that all the classes are indeed necessary. We don't want to, you know, have the the um, king and the priest class just completely genocide the slave caste and such. He says they're all necessary, so he gives a little wink towards fascism, fascism's um, principle of class cooperation and that, but he goes into the prime idea of this book, which is achieving the heroic death, the, the honorable sacrifice. He's He's kind of saying, to go back to tradition, we need to both re um, reject the proletariat Marxism and the bourgeoisie um, mercantile globalism, and we need to go back up into this, um, in to this kind of secular, it's a semi-secular state because some of the values include the, um, the sovereignty of the king by divine right, but it lacks the... It lacks kind of like the duty-based tran transcendental ethics that comes with the priest class. Or, ca I, can't, I don't know why I'm, I'm saying class for the two most upper ones. They're caste. Ah, they're close. Yeah, I know. Caste and class, they're pretty much the same. And I hate the, the idea of economic class, but it's, it's integral to his explanation. And I think it's somewhat relevant. But again, I wish we could just purge the ideas of bourgeoisie and proletariat from from nationalist thought, but again, if it's interbaked, then there's nothing we can do. But in order to achieve this, funnily enough, and this, I'm going to go into a side tangent on this, but a few of the things he references is, he says the reason for the Crusades, it wasn't so much a, a religious or political warfare, he says it was kind of a despite of rather than a because of. He says that the, the Crusades were in fact a reigniting of this need for a heroic death, for giving giving something that is greater to yourself for your race. It, 
he says that it was not because of Christianity, it was despite of it. It just reignited this European spirit of this idea that there is a holy land, there's a heaven, and by fighting to achieve this holy land, you kind of awaken yourself. Now, on this little tangent that I mentioned, he also, funnily enough, praises jihadis. He, he makes the distinction, however, that the, that the people who suicide, um, who suicide attack um, civilians, everything, is not an honorable system. And he goes into a little bit of um, Islamic history going against this, saying that, um, and he uses only one hadith to support this, but he references a hadith where basically Muhammad was coming back from, jih from jihading, you know, fighting non-believers in the name of Allah, and Muhammad says, I have come back from the lesser war to... The greater war, and the Muslims ask, "What is this greater war?" And he says, "The jihad within the spirit." And th this is the this is a huge hmm. kind of problem with Islam because that's why I hate table talks too. Islam will is willing to lie to anyone in order to get itself across as what they want. For Hitler and Evola, it said, "Yes, we have a warrior spirit. We don't condemn. We don't condone mindless." slaughter we have an inner physical jihad inner metaphysical jihad that that we work to conquer ourselves and things like that while at the same time now in the west and in europe it says islam is a religion of peace it preaches tolerance to everyone and is absolutely peaceful to all groups and all people they, obviously both of these can't be true and that's kind of i i don't fault evola for that because i think at the time, there wasn't much access to much access to um, Islamic theology and everything like that, just kind of these net general notions. He also, going back to the original point, he also references Norse mythology very frequently, this concept of Valhalla, that the greatest yes. champions reach Valhalla by fighting and dying in battle, not just dying in battle. And he makes a very, a very distinct... Um, a very distinct point about this that achieving the heroic death is not and he also is funnily enough within there he also gives his own um book review of all quiet on the western front <laughs> and and he goes into it and he says yes the yes to them war may seem terrible because they they have gone into war in the wrong frame of mind and because of this they devolved they didn't evolve into achieving a transcendental state. They didn't become a calm, cool, collected person knowing and controlling his mind and body in this very specific way. They instead devolved merely into animals and beasts. They're merely going in order to protect themselves in a very physical sense, and they're protecting others for the same reason of protecting their physical selves and their lives. So... What Evola is really arguing for in this book is he wants to reverse this decline. He he sees the the fall at the at the end of um World War One. We saw this fall of the monarchies and everything like that, and he sees this as a fall from the um from the noble class. The fall from the the priestly class happened much earlier in in um in European civilization, but he sees this as the fall of the secular nobleman class and right and at the time and now, it's arguable how far we are into the proletarian 
um, ideology of Marxism, but he says now we're in a very globalist, a very mercantile kind of form of ideology governing our society. And he says to reverse this, instead of going and devolving into this very beastly proletarian slave ideology of the only things that are worthwhile are our time and labor and such, and we need to instead go... He doesn't openly... I'm not sure if he actually openly advocates going to war for the sake of war so much, and the sake of war being defined as getting material aims like such as... He doesn't advocate... I wouldn't think he would advocate Europe going to war with, say, Turkey to conquer land or anything like that. But again, it's going to war... For this idea of boosting yourself to a higher plane of, of metaphysical existence, as he puts it, of achieving this heroic death, of being controlling of your own spirit and your own principles and enforcing that spirit. And through the... Of course, I definitely recommend this. I also recommend... Um, I also recommend... Um, Men Amongst the Ruins and all of his other books and everything like that, but Metaphysics of War, I would say even if you haven't read any of Evola's work, I think it's very easy to get into and also very easy to understand. Um, unlike Nietzsche, he doesn't kind of... He doesn't... He doesn't use overly poetic language. He writes it very much as a... Since this was the method he was conveying it to people as just weekly articles in a magazine being no more than a few pages long for each essay, and it containing about, um, I would say maybe two or three dozen essays, it's very easy to get into, even if you haven't read all of this. Of course, most of the books we read on this stream, we're going to assume is worthwhile reading, but I would say, <laughs> if you have... Hopefully. I only read this in about a week, more like six days. If, if you have time just to pick this up, I mean, it's no thicker than your finger. That, along with one of my favorite, um philosophical book, Grounding for the Metaphysics of Morals, by Immanuel Kant. I mean, Kant's book was only 60 pages. This, his collection of essays is only about 139 pages. Slightly longer, but Kant is a lot more dense to read, and this is a lot more acceptable. We can talk about the ideas in this book right after, but I would like to go into Thomas's review of his book. Go ahead. Okay, so, I read the seminal novel, Heart of Darkness, which is interesting that you mention Nietzsche because it is an exploration of Nietzschean themes in set in a novel and from a very critical perspective. So, a little background on it. It was written by a man named Joseph Conrad. The setting of the book is in the Belgian Congo, which, I mean, I don't know if our listeners know this, but here's a little historical background. Late into the 19th century, Belgium took over the heart of Africa, the Congo River Basin, and started to explore the area for the resources that were there. A man named Livingston had recently trekked through the center of Africa. They knew that there was a bunch of ivory there, and so Europeans obviously moved in for colonial ventures. Now, the way that these colonial ventures are set up is the king sets up a corporation, essentially, that act that performs all of the activities there within that colony, quote-unquote. It's not like a, a state or directly administered by the state of the Belgian government. Instead, there's a company that hires people to go into the Congo to extract the things that they want, which are mostly mahogany and ivory, both very popular at the time. So 
Well, the book is about an Englishman who ha just so happens to get a job with this Belgian company. His name is Marlowe, and he's a boat captain, steamboat captain, you know, very complicated stuff. Not a lot of people are great at that, and he's used to seafaring, but as it so happens, he ends up going up the Congo River. And his goal in going up the Congo River, the job he's actually been assigned to do, is find a man named Kurtz. Now, this man named Kurtz apparently has gone off the rails, as you find out in the book. And without giving too much away, though I'm going to give away the plot anyway, um, basically, Kurtz goes nuts even though he's the company's most prized ivory collector. And because he's gone nuts and he's not sending any more ivory back, the company starts to get nervous, and they send Marlowe and group up the river to find out what's going on with Kurtz. As they proceed up the river, there's several vignettes in the novel, which, are, which is extremely well written, that are attempts to explain the absurdity of colonial life, but it also goes into this ruminant theme that goes on throughout the book, and the reason that it's called the Heart of Darkness, about areas that are totally undeveloped. The Congo River Basin at this time being totally undeveloped, untouched by civilization as it was known then. And so it is still, quote-unquote, wild to the Europeans, and, you know, it's wild to the people who live there, too, because they're running around in loincloths, unless they end up getting enslaved by the Belgians to go hunt ivory. So, as he goes up this river, he goes from European-developed areas where they have outposts, and even though the climate sucks and everything sucks, they do have these outposts there, and there's Europeans, to the point where there's only natives that he can see. And that at that point in the river is where he's supposed to meet up with Kurtz. When he gets to the area where Kurtz's station is supposed to be, where all this ivory is flowing from the center of the continent out into you know European hands to then get distributed around the continent for various purposes, like piano keys, um, he finds that Kurtz has actually gone native. Now, earlier he had found a manuscript Kurtz had written about how the natives were essentially humans and blah, blah, blah. And then over it, Kurtz had scribbled in just like manic ink, had written, exterminate all the brutes. So when Marlowe arrives, he's expecting to see that Kurtz has been either killed by all of these natives and trying to kill them or that he's just killed them all and something's happened. He arrives there and finds... Instead that, like I said, this guy's gone wild. He's gone native. He has essentially created a system, a hierarchy, a caste system almost, amongst the natives in which he's at the head. And they worship him like this bizarre white-skinned god that has come in from the coast to, you know, bring their world upwards. And in that process, he's... He's experimented with these Nietzschean kind of themes of being this, you know, ubermensch, this person who is above morality. He has ascended above the morality of Europe at the time. And because of that, he can set up this society in which all of these people are basically his slaves, doing for him what it is that he is sent there to do. But in that process, he loses himself. He loses himself to the power. And then he gets sick with malaria. And that's, Kurtz, they drag him out of there. He's, you know, he goes willingly. It's not like the movie, which you've all seen, Apocalypse Now, where he's, like, not willing to leave. Kurtz gets on the boat. As they go back, Kurtz dies of malaria. So, Kurtz is dead, and right as he's about to die, he looks at Marlowe, and he exclaims, The horror! The horror! Which is, like, you know, the line in the book everyone's heard before. You've heard that line in the movie, too. 
But what this is suggestive of, and what it's suggestive of couched within the themes of the book, is actually not, you know, the horror of what I've done personally, but just like the horror of this whole experience. The reason he's yelling exterminate all the brutes on his piece of paper is because as he's going native, as he's becoming like these people or just like ascending his morality to the point where he just loses touch with reality, he becomes disenchanted with their lifestyle the same way that he becomes disenchanted with the way that the europeans are he kind of grows into this weird middle ground a foot in one world and a foot in the other and eventually he belongs in neither of them anymore and so the book does ruminate on a lot of different themes and it's extremely worth the read because it's very well put together it is a victorian novel so it is on the dense side but if you're listening to this you probably don't have too much issue with density a really great kind of vignettes into the way that the colonial system worked at this time which you wouldn't necessarily get from other work it was written to be critical of the colonial system so you do see like that kind of naked dark side of it but at the same time the biggest theme in the book this reoccurring theme of you know the congo this undeveloped wild land finally being touched by civilization and sort of like the beginnings of the modernization of this area which to this day is an ongoing process this area is still afflicted with terrible violence the democratic republic of the congo today as i'm sure anyone who watches the news knows is not a nice place to be these people still kill each other off in huge numbers even though there's no more whites there so we can't really always blame the whites for this kind of stuff just rest in peace rhodesia yeah oh man that poor country but yeah it's an interesting book. It's worth the read. Um, you know, if you have to take a lot of it with a grain of salt. And Marlowe is you know, a representative of Conrad, who is looking. Conrad himself was a the son of a Russian conscript in Poland who left and became an Englishman, so that he didn't have to get conscripted into the Russian army in Poland when he came of age, because it was generational. And so he's very critical of empire. Nonetheless. You do see that there are some kind of shining gems of empire, as absurd as Conrad makes it out to be in the book. There are things like the civilizing of these people, or like these people not living basically in malaria-infested hellholes, but actually being given the option of doing other things, of you know, of seeing more of the world, of having their mindset expanded over time. Very interesting. Um, also, in the Norton Critical Edition, there are some very, very good first-hand accounts written of the actual explorers, not just Livingston, who you can actually read his book, and it's good too, but of like other people that were there. In particular, there's an account written by a British officer about when they sieged, when they seized the city of Benin, which today is a country, but originally was like a city-state on the western coast of Africa. And he describes the situation that the British see when they arrive, which is a society that's set up in, it's almost like the Aztecs, where they sacrifice people. Um, voodoo comes actually from their language. It was a reference to kind of their Tolmetic uh, religious system that they had set up in the city of Benin. And he describes like the absolute horror him and his men feel when they see all the what to them is like this despicable, unrealistic religion and the way that they sacrifice human beings, especially children, in order to make the... Um, the make the Mutu medicine that they use, which is like potions and various things that are supposed to have effects that, you know, beneficial effects 
very interesting first-hand account. There's also accounts of what the Congo was like originally. That comes from Livingston as well as other people. Livingston was an American, by the way, talking about nationalism. Good old American hiking through the bush in the Congo. Um, we've got you know speeches about what was going on in these cities, in, in African cities at this time, in the native African cities. And the big lesson that you learn from all of this material, and I do not think the publisher's intention was to kind of impart this on the reader, but absolutely, Africa is the same that it has always been. Clearly, even without Europeans there, these people were doing very horrible things to one another. Um, and doing so in a way that was kind of justified by their worldviews, so they didn't really think anything of it. They didn't have like the moral compass that apparently developed in Eurasian societies, where we think like killing kids so that your dick works is probably a bad idea. Well, then again, there is China, which kills rhinos so that their dicks work, but you know. I digress. Um, and here in the West, we have stem cells, which make your dicks and spines work. <laughs> yeah, wow. Crazy. And we have this thing called Viagra. Nothing gets hurt when we make it. It's nuts. Mm. All very good. It's also good, I think, to reevaluate like the literature you read as a kid that talks about how evil colonialism is. Because there are a lot of aspects of colonialism that aren't really mentioned in the critical like attack colonialism you know, literature that we all grew up reading the myth that we grew up understanding that we were taught about how the world works um there are aspects of colonialism that are very interesting to point out like as this book points out if it were it's not for the romans invading the native celtic tribes of the britannic islands the Brittany or Britain, I should say, would still to this day be a wild quote-unquote zone, that it was empire that brought the light of civilization to these places initially, and that kind of process unfolded across Europe, and most of the big European countries were actually just a bunch of savages running around when the Romans started invading initially with their legions. There's also the aspect of empire that's really interesting, especially 19th century empires, which was their kind of like macroeconomic effects. So people in Europe really want ivory so that they can make pianos. And there's lots of people who can buy pianos at this time period that want to buy pianos. And they also want mahogany furniture. Therefore, this Belgian company goes to Africa and uses this land almost exclusively to pull out these two resources that it is looking for. In the process, it, in order to just make its own people comfortable, it has to start this settling process where they start building cities, where they start creating the supply networks, utilizing the rivers so that they can move supplies up and down into the interior of the continent. There's also the, you know, this whole process and the macroeconomic development of the Congo would not have occurred if there weren't Europeans who are willing to sit there all day and carve piano keys out of elephant tusk which is also like it's another aspect of colonialism that's not mentioned not mentioned in this book in particular but another interesting one for the listeners to think about is the effect that british colonialism had on india related theme so i'm just going to digress into this had it not been for the British taking over India in various ways. They had both areas they directly administered as well as princely states that were administered by the princes themselves who then answered to the queen in theory. Really, it was the British East India Company up until the British Raj was formed in which the state began to directly administer it. The effect of all of that, not only was the development of India, which today is turning into a world superpower, and so clearly it's had a 
great amount of benefit from having European technology brought, but also the religious effect. So in a lot of the northern Indian states, the prince would be a Muslim and he would tolerate the fact that there were Hindus in his state because they would have to pay taxes. And those taxes would be used by a lot of the princes to, you know, fatten up their, uh, fatten up their war chest. It would be for, you know, the luxuries that they wanted as well as so that they continue to gain power utilizing this extra money that they had from the thousands upon thousands of Hindus that were obliged to pay this tax. However, occasionally, one prince would come into power and he would be totally intolerant of Hinduism because it's not one of the quote-unquote accepted faiths of Islam, but, you know, honestly, Islam doesn't accept anything but itself and only its narrow interpretation of itself. And so the states would eventually be converted from Hinduism to Islam through like this process of randomly getting that super pious prince who would then rule that kingdom and convert everyone. And so it is arguable that given another 100, 200 years, even larger chunks of India would not be Hindu anymore, but would be Muslim. And the Muslim world would be much larger because of it. An example is the state of Bengal, traditionally a Hindu holy land. It's at the, the you know, where the... Ganges River meets the Indian Ocean. That delta is extremely significant in Hinduism. And the area that is today the state of Bengal, not the state of West Bengal, which is a part of India, but Bengal itself is mostly Muslim. Simply because over the course of time, like I said, some prince got in there. He said, no, I'm not going to tolerate any of you Hindus anymore. You better convert or I'm going to kill you. And so it's just interesting to note that colonialism also kind of stopped up some of the leaks in which Islam was leaking into the third world. Now, arguably, would that have changed, you know, the world's history? Probably to some degree. It wouldn't be huge for Europeans. But it is interesting to note colonialism has a lot of effects other than just being evil whites being bad. All right. Let's move on. You have anything to say about that, Cole? Um, yes. Actually, I, I should have put it online, but... Um... If many people are unfamiliar with my writing style, it's often I will write something in a, on a physical piece of paper in a notebook, and I have multiple notebooks of this, and they just kind of sit there until the topic either becomes relevant or I feel inspired to actually either expound or to copy them online. But for a while, I was kind of into this... I was kind of into a... Um, I don't even really know how to put it. It was... It was somewhat dialectic, but not exactly the Hegelian dialectic, but the the idea of these essays I wrote was on this position of what is the ideal form of um, colonialism and um, hmm. and imperialism. Um, and basically, I, I, I use these kind of graphs to kind of illustrate the point is um, I broke it down in first two different categories of, um, of how... It can be done. Now, the idea behind colonialism is to get these resources and other things from these um, various tribes or these other um, non... Um, non... I don't even really... How can I put this? Non-in-group people, these foreign people, as it were. So, I... What were the two terms I used? I used two different terms that were basically amounted to um, creating organic growth and imposing imposing growth like 
artificially imposing institutions that would have resulted in organic growth. Basically, and the the example I gave was um, cell phones and cell phone towers. So if you're colonizing some, you know, foreign people, if you go in and you, you know, you know, almost enslave them, but you basically build cell phone towers, you give every single one a cell phone, yes, your temporary gains are increased because the productivity of said foreign people are increased. However, over time, as this is the inevitable course of colonial civilization, the people that are that are being, you know, um, controlled by this foreign state are going to become more and more dissatisfied. They're going to become more and more rebellious, as it were, demanding if if not fair rights, just in a general sense, demanding better things, demanding better compensation for this, and thus, it's an it's an inevitable, inevitable case that either the empire collapses in the case of um in the case of kind of Britain, where it all the people from these former colonies are able to re um re-immigrate to to the British Isles, or it's the case that the um that the colonializer just pulls out altogether and says you're on your own and i think that was the case for um i believe spain for the most part i believe that's true mostly for spain for the places they colonized they came in and conquered and pulled out as soon as they they got you know basically got their fill from the resources but it's this basic idea that um that is brought up and I wish I could remember his name, but it was a great um, philanthropist that worked in Africa, and he gave this this great quote that when you're in Africa and dealing with African peoples, you cannot consider yourself equal to them. You must consider yourself to be a teacher or a mentor. If you consider yourself equal to them, they will either destroy everything you create or you will just be devoured by them. Similar to in your book, Hard Darkness, of being integrated into their, into their people. But with this colonial idea it i put forth this idea that you have to if you want i i originally postulated that colonialism was kind of a bad idea because of very um ethno-nationalist means we don't want to involve other people in our societies for risk of um you know kind of getting this reverse immigration where the people of the colonies are getting getting better access to your own country, but I said, if you do want to colonialize a people, it's best to go in there and try to develop their civilization naturally so it doesn't accelerate this process of them rejecting the colonial rule and causing more problems for that. And I also drew a general graph and outline of the, um, it was, it was basically a, you know, a ratio or comparison Sorry about that snap. I'm fiddling with something while I talk, but um, <laughs> but it was a general comparison of people's desire to get this more, this more, this either it could be more representation, it could be just more material wealth, it could be more access to these technologies or perceived cushy lives of these aristocrats ruling over them, compared to how much resources you're able to get by developing this country. And it was basically, even before you reach your peak, you want to pull out before you reach your peak, because at that specific peak, from there, it's all going to decline downhill of the people saying, 
we want you to give us more and that demand of appeasing them without without causing revolution is less valuable than the resources you're extracting from them now do you i know you made the argument that colonialism was a good thing because it benefited india and all these other well african I, countries but do you agree i with don't that intend sentiment <laughs> I, I don't intend for anyone to think that I think colonialism is a good thing per se. Colonialism, like everything else, it has its upsides, it has its downsides. I mean, that's a very interesting way to look at it is like using those two dynamics as the various axes for a graph. I mean, there's also other things that go into colonialism. You've got manpower expended on it. There's a lot of things that, especially in our modern community today, isn't necessarily a good idea or something that I would advocate for. But yeah, I do agree with those general sentiments that, yeah, there is a point at which there's only so much you can pull out of a country before it's just unreasonable for you. And the Belgians reached that in 1965, and they pulled out in a hurry. And funnily enough, I believe this was the Belgian colonies. Didn't they offer a reward for thieves, or was it rebels, their left hands or so, and so it ended up creating a market where people are just cutting off people's left hands to sell them to the Belgians. I, I don't remember exactly what the cause was, but yeah, that is an interesting parable about the uh, Belgian colonies, especially in Africa. And it, it, a similar thing was also referenced in one of my um, economic courses. I, I got my degree in political science, but my minor was in economics, and yeah, in discussing... And in discussing um, markets, we or it was either in one of my economics classes or in a class involving just bureaucracy and the um, American bureaucracy, like studying its structure and infrastructure. But um, it basically tells a story, and I believe it was the Belgians again, or it might have been the French. Basically, there was a huge rat problem in one of their colonies, so they offered to pay Africans people. You know, the idea was we pay you a little bit of money for every single dead rat you bring us. So it created, if funnily enough, it created a market of people exploiting that where you would have <laughs> rat breeders. The, the African <laughs> people were breeding rats together in order to, you know, bring back massive amounts of dead rats to the, the Belgians. And that's another funny little thing with colonialism. And if you want to see, um, as I mentioned before, this idea of the people who pulled out of the colonies on my channel, which is... Um, Colcol, C-O-L-C-O-A-L. One of my first videos is a um, translation of a great Italian film called Africa Audio. It, the the English version is was a, it has been put as a kind of butchery because it's called Africa Blood and Guts, and it paints, it it paints the um, the colonial powers leaving as a revolution that is bloody but overall good but africa audio it it paints a much different picture it just it almost just shows the collapse of society and civility in general when these colonial powers pulled out it when the british pulled out in this um particular colony it shows just absolute devastation all the former wildlife preserves that were there they were immediately hunted to, you know, not extinction of the species, but almost to just extinction in that local area. There was massive amounts of poaching, massive amounts of, um, oh crap, what was, what was that terrorist organization called? It wasn't ANC, but it was the Mau Mau, that was it. The, oh. 
the Mau Mau and oh. showed all the prisoners being released that were Mau Mau calling them heroes of the people and everything like that and just a massive amounts of killing of the Boers and all these terrible things. But again, it it's called Africa Adio and it's on my channel. You can watch for free with English subtitles and I recommend Sounds good. I recommend that. But um well, I, I think that's another instructive aspect of colonialism, too, is that it really points out, especially in its formation and then in the time that the European powers were no longer able to sustain it, it points out the differences between the Europeans and the society they built and the Africans and the kind of the natural society that they go to when they don't have that, like, European overlord, quote-unquote. And it is instructive of the differences that do exist between these two groups in particular. I think that's a stark example, but you could see it almost anywhere that was a former colony. That's true, and back then, when I wasn't so explicitly ethno-naturalist in my essays, I would have attributed that to um, imposed growth rather than organic growth. I would have said that these institutions that were forced on the African people only bred resentment to these specific institutions, and thus, when those institutions are no longer enforced, you get the bloody uprising and dismantling of these institutions compared to, say, the the Indian people that... While the while they still had stuff in, enforced on them, these institutions, for the most part, did have some kind of organic effect because it's not so much that they were created organically, it's that they... I don't really even know how to put this. It was that they were more agreeable to the Indian people, thus the Indian people were able to build upon the institutions themselves. A very good, right. a very good parable of this was... Is, um, it's not so much a parable, but an actual story based on a quote of this British general that it was a practice of the, um, of, I don't know if it was a specific sect, but just Hindus in India, whenever a, a husband would die, it was customary at the time to burn the widow in the funeral pyre along with the husband. And so right. when this British general came and saw this, he was absolutely horrified, and he put into place a law saying anyone who burns women alive are, are going to be hung from a tree, and the and the Indians said, you can't do this, it's, you know, it's our religious right, we believe it's right, and he said, alright, fine, that's your culture, you can do what your culture says, but my culture says whenever someone burns an innocent woman alive, that person is to be hung from a tree, and eventually that practice, you know, is no longer around, at least I don't believe right. it's any longer around in India, so, again, this, this point is that with colonialism, Imposing institutions is going to result in it, it's going to result in a lot of bloodshed. And whether you you put this idea that we brought hospitals, we brought extensive care for them, we got resources out of it, the the manner in which you go about forcing the the Right. Uh oh. Did Cole cut out? I think he did. Well, Cole has cut out. So, I'm going to continue on with this thought that's just kind of ruminating in my head, and hopefully he gets it worked out, whatever's going on on the other side. So, 
The interesting thing, I think, also about imperialism, and kind of segueing off what he was talking about, was there is a difference, and I had mentioned this earlier, there is a difference in the people that you are attempting to colonize. So, you just have to let him know he cut out. So, if you try to colonize people, like, let's take the Native Americans, for example, specifically the Aztecs. If you colonize the Aztecs and you attempt to make the Aztecs like the Spanish, you're going to have issues. So, one, one issue that you would have is some of their kind of native practices are going to be hard to take away. The Spanish, in particular, were pretty good at this. What they did was they adopted some of the religious iconography of the Aztecs to the Catholic Church, the, bur the Flaming Heart, the Sacred Heart was adapted from the Aztecs to kind of get rid of their cut-the-heart-out fetish and, at the same time, help indoctrinate them into the manners of Spanish society. But ultimately, I mean, just look at Mexico today, there's still a bloody people that really like to mutilate each other over relatively petty things, like drug lords who like to chop heads off. We've all seen those videos. So... Another interesting thing about the different peoples that you attempt to colonize is some of them will inherently recognize, even if they resent you, will inherently recognize the um, benefits of your society. For instance, the Indians is a great example. The Indians recognize the benefits of a lot of the administrative structures of the English, adopted them, and continue to use them to this day to great success comparatively i mean india is no paradise by any means but like the adoption of the english legal system seems to have gotten rid of a lot of the sectarian law differences that existed in india where muslims were subject to one court and hindus were subject to another and buddhists to another and jains if they could even find a judge you have this kind of unified civil legal structure these ideas that are brought in with the europeans and a people that are receptive at least to the wisdom of some of these ideas who then build onto them. And, you know, of course, they're going to resent you. All right, Cole's back. It's okay. These things happen. So I was just talking about, like, the different, the receptivity of various peoples to the institutions brought and was about to start talking about, it's kind of interesting from a political science perspective to see the development that we've been able to make in system administration and bureaucracy after having the colonial experience, there's these bumbling instances where we're creating markets for rats. And these kind of things are instructive to the, the student of bureaucracy. What a, a sad study that is. It, the various methods that one can go about using a public interface to interact with a population. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I
yeah. <laughs> Richard Spencer. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Right.
Right. Well, I mean, I th there is. I do subscribe to the let them do their own thing, let Africa, you know, basically be a preserve of what life was like uh, ten thousand years ago. Let that continue to occur. That's absolutely yes. But at the same time, <laughs> yeah and, and but there is also like there is a time especially as a country you know if an ethno-nationalist state started really to acquire power and strength which i mean at first probably would not be the case at that, uh, there's like that very fine point at which they might actually need to extract resources from some lesser people, unfortunately for those people that are there. And I could see a justification, at least morally within the ethno state, to be like, okay, well, up there in Alaska, they got a lot of oil we need, and those natives aren't doing anything with it, so let's go take it. Yeah, well, yeah, because that, that'll be all that's left if they break off. The Indians will drink themselves to death. It's very sad that they cannot handle their liquor. Oh. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, there is there is credence. And I, w I want the audience just to like think about this, too. Even if you don't agree with somebody's work or like their overall conclusion, that doesn't mean that there aren't points of validity or like gems of truth that you can extract from that kind of writing, which is. No, I did not see it. Please fill me in. 
<laughs> uh oh. 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 Right. I mean, you should absolutely verse yourself in the arguments of people who you are opposed to. I mean, one, how do you really know your opposition other than just like surface level opposition if you don't understand the theoretical concepts underpinning it? And also, it gives you a lot of insight into the chinks in the armor of the other's argument. So if you do, like, for instance, if you read Marx, you'll figure out a whole number of ways that you can start to pull Marxism apart that you wouldn't have considered if you just read, the, you know, the Cliff Notes version and said, all right, I understand Marxism and I hate it. Great.
You know, I think you summed it up pretty nicely, actually. I'm going to go with your explanation, and that I was a little distracted, sorry. Oh, yes. Ugh. 
Right. Ugh. Right. Well, I mean, th there's not only just, like, the, the danger of the breakdown of gender relations completely, which, you know, the feminists have been agitating for for a while now. Um, it, there's also, like, the issue of then we start to become dependent on machines in much more intimate ways. And maybe this is a, a slightly neo-Luddite-ish argument, but in my personal opinion... If we are going to become dependent on machines, we should at least have a level of distance between the machines and ourselves that if something horrific happens and the machines stop working, we can still function. And if we're starting to, being that we are, you know, a, a pack animal, we exist in these kind of groups, if we're beginning to relay social responsibilities onto robots or, you know, these robot waifus, then sooner or later we're going to become emotionally dependent on them, even if they're not necessarily emotional beings. One that's going to have implications for human psychology that are uh, just obnoxious, like the, just the thought that, that what that's going to do to psychology. But even more pressing is now you can't live without your machine. So, you know, your horrific reason you don't have access to machines or machines in general just stop functioning. Now you're not even going to be able to function as a human in a group of other humans because you're used to functioning as a human in a, a mixed group of men and female machines. Ugh.
Right. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know. I think humans really need to, while I'm not like, oh my god, Skynet is about to become active, or one of those, like, the singularity nuts that think at any moment technology is just going to burst ahead of us, I think we should absolutely be very conscious, very careful, and just very thinking forward about our integration into technology, which is happening at an even more rapid pace. I mean, we saw the way that, you know, smartphones have radically changed human interactions with one another, their their social interactions, the way that society kind of functions has changed. If we start bringing in really big changes where we become much more integrated with technology, the ramifications of that could be disastrous, and we wouldn't see it coming until tragedy struck. And so we should be very careful, in my humble opinion. And, you know, I understand that that's not necessarily the most popular opinion, especially with things like, you know, the computer being so beneficial. But there are downsides to all of this, and we need to be very careful of those.
Right. Yes, and yeah, you human psychology has been set by hundreds of thousands of years. So if we were to just suddenly, you know, not have the mother, yes, there would absolutely be detrimental effects to the children. But also there would be detrimental effects even to that first generation without the women. There would be detrimental effects for humans interacting with robots, assuming them to have human characteristics that they, they don't have. Like you said about AIs, they're just mere, you know, mimicking their mimes that are miming human emotion, but they don't actually possess it. It, it seems like the whole variety of new i'm sure the dsm would love this a whole variety of new psychological ailments would spring up out of that would spring up out of like the dissatisfaction the hollowness the various other things that we already see in postmodern society exacerbated by this very close like pack interaction with what are essentially semi-thinking machines also you know we make ourselves vulnerable there's the chance that we really can't you know, reproduce effectively for a while after we start this, but then you would have to basically force people to reproduce with one another because at that point, who's going to want a woman when you can have a much more pleasant robot at home? Yes. Yeah, you have no choice. Well, and I mean, at that point, that even would be a radical change in human psychology as well. If we were to institute kind of like a mass breeding program and then, you know, how would we take care of the children? If it's the state taking care of the children, you're going to raise like one type of a generation. Or if you like force these people into this, you know, family unit, they're not necessarily going to cling together. They might actually really hate each other. And that would create tension within the relationship that would create tension within the kid. So, like, all of this, like, we have to be very cautious of, in my humble opinion.
Right. Yeah, and when you take away the risks like that, there, there's going to be other issues that arise out of that. You have warring machine bots. Then you have the, you know, the, the stage is set for the Eternal Wars of 1984, George Orwell's work. Not necessarily the movie, but like how there's the three countries always at war with one another. You have the stage set for kind of like people tuning out of major conflicts that they probably should keep their eye on, keep the government, you know, steering towards their ultimate goals instead of the ultimate goals of some small cadre within the government's inner circle. There's a lot of issues with turning war into a battle between machines, and you're also denying, and which we do in our current society already, you are denying this essential aspect of human psychology, which is very brutal competition with other human beings especially men it's something that we are designed to do it's something that our lack of having you know that that need fulfilled in our society leads us to you know obsessing over stupid sports teams or whatever it happens to be and you're going to exacerbate that problem even further when you no longer have any reason at all for human beings to compete in a brutal setting with one another because you could just have robots do it. I mean, I, the reason that I haven't really touched on them is that I haven't worked on the book itself. I would really like to actually get into Evola, so I was taking your review kind of like as a teaser for beginning to read it. But from what I've gathered of Evola's thinking, both from your description now as well as from other blurbs I've run into, is that the natural kind of like the, the desire of Evola to structure a society in which the, the urges of man are all accounted for, that the, the kind of needs of the civilization from the individual up are designed within the system, but are designed in such a way that, you know, it's not the psychotic mess that we live in today is very interesting. I just worry that like with any kind of massive structuring of a society, so many things that you don't think about as you're putting it onto paper, so many things that even you know the best minds in the world working on these systems for long periods of time just fail to take into account for whatever reason can put significant weaknesses like designed into that system. And so thinking of it you know more outside of like the individual scope, but as like kind of the macro looking down on the society as a political entity, I just would worry that, instituting his thinking on a very grand level we would leave open 
various windows, various uh, areas where you could wheel in that wooden horse. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I think that the concepts, both in their classical Marx sense as well as kind of in their colloquial meanings today, are very important ways of understanding. And you know what? I will address another point of Evola that I didn't address earlier, probably because I forgot about it. <laughs> um, the, the idea of the caste system in general, the idea of having like some kind of functional steps within society, the functional levels in which people... They don't necessarily have to be born into, but people are placed into at some point, somewhat similar to the way that the Swiss determine, you know, what career path their people go down, is absolutely a good idea. Now, I think it's good to address your original point. I absolutely think it is good to have those terms as a way of addressing kind of the social stratification that exists in, you know, this post-capitalistic society that we've developed and also, I think it's, a, it's really important for us to utilize that terminology so that we can start to, you know, bend it and twist it in such a way that it is more useful to us instead of letting the other side define it completely and then trying to play catch up with them, which is unfortunately what a lot of right wing political theory has done for a long time.
Right. Well, I think... Okay, so my counter to that is I think that there is a way to kind of frame these ideas, especially if we're the ones framing the ideas, that we can define them such that tension doesn't naturally arise. And we can also build into, because America is going to have to, especially American whites, are going to have to go through a new like cultural generation process. And as we generate that new culture, it is important within certain limits to describe these different classes as all essential to the society as a whole. And, you know, the Germans actually did a decent job of this, as much as I hate to bring this up under the Natsock era. They did a decent job of making the classes feel as if we are all working together towards a common goal. I do X, you do Y. That doesn't necessarily assign value. It doesn't matter. Like, you're not better or worse for your economic positioning, per se. I also think it's important for us to, as Americans... Yeah, I, I prefer the German model of those two as you as you illuminate them. I do prefer the like because there I think there is a certain limit at which not necessarily all of the classes need to exist. You know, the the welfare class, for instance, does not need to exist, or you know, the the globalist class. You know, all oh, the damn globalists they don't necessarily need to exist. In fact, they're a, they're actually kind of the symptom of decadence and decay. I would say that it's important for us to frame the way that we move forward, you know, the way that we generate our culture going forward in such a way that we do see each other as like brothers as opposed to units that are competing and advocating for one another to achieve certain goals. And I do think that for the vast majority of American whites, that would be kind of a more natural way to look at these things. I mean, yes, we are competitive peoples naturally, but... We do absolutely have the tribe mentality still. I mean, just look at the way that people treat their sports teams. And so putting framing everyone as part of the tribe while not necessarily saying we need absolutely every member of the tribe gives you more leverage kind of ideologically as you move forward. Yes.
Yeah, agreed. I, I And I think that's one of the biggest issues with Marxism in general, which is just the framing everything as materialism and economics. That's not necessarily helpful. It's not necessarily a complete worldview. And I think if we were to you know, take in these terms, we do have to modify the semantics simply so that they can fit into our worldview itself. And the right does have a much more nuanced worldview. It's framing it as a political thing we can do. We can also frame it to some degree as a social thing, to some degree as you know various other factors that are important within the right that in the left they just try to deconstruct. And so if we are to bring in these terms, I absolutely agree. We, we have to reframe them. And the way that we go about that you know, is yet to be determined. Greater minds than mine will decide that. But... Absolutely, it has to be couched in the context of the right in order to become part of the discourse of the right. I think that describes American politics for the last 30 years pretty accurately. And it's not about it. So, hey, go figure. And I'm Tom. Have a great night. All right. Bye.